You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. So it doesn't take long, you know, if you read the Old Testament to, to conclude some things. And, and one is, is that following the law doesn't save anybody. Um, Israel was not a perfect people. God didn't choose them because they were somehow more spiritual than the rest of the world. He chose them to represent Him to the rest of the world. So they kind of present a picture of ourselves when we see the, the, the decay of their spiritual condition at the close of the Old Testament. It, it should say to us that, yeah, that's me. Um, I, I don't have the ability to rescue myself, to be faithful like God requires to me be, to be faithful. I'm, I'm in trouble unless something outside of me um, comes to help me. So that's, that's the point of the Old Testament, and that's the point of uh, the prophets, and, and especially Malachi here, because that's the last word Israel gets for quite a while. I want to ask you a question. Did you ever get in trouble with your parents for a repeated offense? No, no, of course not. You know, it was just one of those things that they just couldn't seem to knock it into your head and you just kept doing it. Do, do you remember any of their statements of frustration or maybe some of the threats that they might have used to correct you? Is, is there anything that sticks out? I mean, like like this one, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times kind of thing. You know, I started counting. When my mom said that, I said, okay, let's get to 2,000. <laughs> that sort of thing. I think she over-exaggerates. <laughs> um, but yeah, she said some other things. But what are some of the things maybe you heard um, because of your, I don't know, cycle of disobedience that were just having a t- tough time getting you out of it? You don't have to confess anything. You just have to tell me what, what did you hear. My dad's belt buckle. Yeah, Yeah, my dad has the ability to clear his belt loops, double it over, and snap it so fast that I'm like, okay, you don't even have to hit me with that because that impressed me so much, I'm going to be good for the rest of my life. (laughs) Of course, I wasn't. Do I have to get the spoon out? Oh, (laughs) do I have to get the spoon? Yeah. Uh, sorry, you just gave my daughter PTSD there. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I could hear the rattling of the kitchen utensils. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I did kind of have the tendency when I opened the door to kind of shake it a little bit just to add the emphasis to it. Thankfully, Allie was one of those. You just had to do that. And she's like, I, I repent of everything. <laughs> Did not have to spank her hardly at all, I don't think. So. Okay, anything else that you might remember a parent or someone saying to you? We'll go home right now. We'll go home right now, okay. Or wait till, or wait till your father gets home or something like that, yeah. Yeah, my mom once said to me something along the lines of, uh, I'm going to knock you right in the middle of next week. <laughs> I mean, we talk about violence in video games. Man, moms, moms are way worse. <laughs> I brought you into this world. I can take you out. You know. <laughs> Sometimes that's how much we flustered them and frustrate. Could you imagine if that was the last thing you heard? That voice of frustration or that threat because of our inability to somehow get our our act together? Because that's that is what happens. In the book of Malachi, that's what happens at the end of Malachi. Depending on your translation, some some words might be utter destruction, another one might be curse. 
And just imagining that echoing in the silence for 400 years. It's interesting how 400 years keeps popping up because it seems like that's a time of completion. At the number 40, whenever that shows up, it's God doing something completely. And it's not until John the Baptist finally steps into the scene and says, repent, (laughs) repent. And then Jesus shows up, the one he was preparing. And Jesus says, repent. That's the message God has been given to mankind uh, from the beginning. So our message today... As we consider the history of the Old Testament, the cycle of disobedience that seemed to be set on repeat, um, Israel's failure uh, constantly, it seems, and reflecting our own, we see God's warnings, okay, uh, and we see that reinforced throughout the Old Testament, throughout all of the prophets, um, both major and minor. But along with the warnings of judgment uh, for unrepentant disobedience, they are also given promises of restoration and redemption for those who do repent and and those who do say, God, I'm going to be faithful to you. So the the message of Malachi today begins where uh, the Old Testament finishes. So look at Malachi 4, and we're going to look at verse 1. Let's read through this. It says, For behold, a day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Oreb for Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You know, as God's saying, unless I have to come and knock you back into the middle of next week. That's, that's a strong word that he ends on there. Well, as we look at that text, one thing is abundantly clear in this text, and it's also reinforced throughout the entire Bible, and that is that we only have two destinations, you and I. Just two. Two and only two. There's not a third one. God does not allow that option. It's one or the other. Every single human being will end up in one of these two destinations. And the first destination is described in verse 1 as a burning oven that sets the unrepentant ablaze. What is that a picture of? That's a picture of the ultimate judgment of hell. I hate that word. I hate that concept. Theology would be a lot easier if it didn't exist. But it does exist. And it has to be talked about. That is the destination of the the unrepentant, disobedient soul. Ultimately, a burning oven. It's not a nice picture. But then there's a contrast to that later on. I think it was in verse, uh, uh, verse 2. Yeah. There's another destination that's described as a son of righteousness that brings healing 
and wholeness. Do you see the contrast in that? One is a burning oven that destroys and, and brings ruin, and the other one is a sun of righteousness, another burning thing, but this burning brings in restoration and, and, and healing. Those are the two choices that we have set before us for all the history of mankind. These are how we ultimately choose to deal with our brokenness, with, with our sins, with our fallen condition. And, and, and if, we, if we don't seriously approach this thing, I fear where we could end up. Uh, I fear where a soul might, might go. Um, Jesus did not pull any punches with this. Uh, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, he, he describes these two destinations. And listen to how he describes it. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Did you, did you get those words that he just said there? Uh, wide, easy, but the end is destruction, and, and those who go that way will be many. And then he sets the contrast with this verse, verse 14 of chapter 7. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. See the four words that contrasted there? Narrow and hard, (laughs) life, but few. And that's because we would all prefer to take the easy way. It's just our bent. It's just our wiring. Let's let's do the easy way rather than the right way. And it, it should... I don't know, it it just staggers me when I look at that contrast where Jesus says, probably not many are really going to pursue the way of righteousness because it's hard, because the way is narrow, because it's tough. Many would rather go the other, the other way. Well, rather than looking at the road, I think we got to look at the destination and say, is that really what I want? You know, if if that's what I want, then it doesn't matter what condition the road's going to be in, I'm going to take that road. Okay. So when we go back to Malachi and we look through that entire book, you saw that there were some disputes between God and the, and the people there. Um, and that was because the people had begun to pursue empty religion. Now, regardless of what anybody says about the Bible, regardless of what somebody believes about the Bible, everyone, yes, everyone has a religion. Because every person has a theology. If you have a theology, you have a religion. If you believe in God, that's your theology. If you believe in many gods, that's your theology, and your religion will follow that. If you don't believe in God, that's a theological statement and assertion. That's a, that's a belief, and you will have a religion that follows that as well. So every single human being is, in one way or another, religious. The problem that God had with the people of Israel was that they were pursuing empty religion. Okay? Now, he's not talking about the unbeliever. He's not talking about the, the cult follower. He's not talking about someone who has some wild idea. about. He's talking about his own people getting caught up in religion that has no substance. None whatsoever. And that's why he has this dispute with them. And you saw how when he would bring the accusation against them, you saw how they would react. What, God? What are you saying to us? It's all on you, man. That kind of reminds me of one of my favorite comedian's uh, stories about Noah. 
building the ark and it comes into the story where, where God says to Noah, Noah, you know, he's trying to get the animals into the ark and it's kind of humorous the way the guy describes it and everything. He's pushing these, these two hippos up into the ark and, and God says, Noah, you, you gotta take one of those hippos back. You got two males there and you need a female. And Noah turns around because he's had a hot, he's had a hard time. He's finally at the close, but it's been a tough job. He turns around, he snaps a gun. You change one of them. <laughs> and he starts arguing with God. And God responds with, hey, Noah, how long can you tread water? <laughs> Which is, yeah, that would have been a good one for my mom to say. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and that just shows when our hearts are out of whack with God and we kind of get off on the wrong trail, we start accusing God. Uh, when he starts bringing some things that we need to hear some truth in our lives, we, we tend to snap back and tell him he's the one that's got a problem. And not us. And that's what Israel did there. And, and, and as we went through, or as we went through the book, we, we saw several ways that God made it abundantly clear through Malachi that, that these people, He had no stomach for their religious observances. I want to read chapter 2, verses 13 and 17. This was the description of the religious Israelite in Malachi and Nehemiah's day. And this is God's assessment of it. You cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards your offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. They were still observing religious practices, but God says, I'm not accepting those. There's something wrong with those and I won't take those. In verse 17, later on, it says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. You know, religious people got a lot of things to say. Yakety yak, yada yada. We just go and go and go. And, and, and we think we're, that our words are full of substance, but if, if, if our heart is empty towards God, if it's not in the right relationship with Him as it ought to be, then, then I don't care how flowery or how religious we sound, it is tiresome to God. Now, I, I think that this should be a warning to us because if this is the condition that Israel, God's chosen people, could fall into, we have to ask ourselves, well, what about us? Can we as Christians get apathetic in our relationship with God? Can, can the fires grow cold? <laughs> and, 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 or maybe we never even started off on the right foot in the first place. Maybe we think we're Christians because we were born in the United States of America or because our parents went to a certain church or something like that. We've never really done business with the gospel. So just real quick, here's what was happening, and, and, and the video kind of reviewed it too, but here's some things that, that Israel teaches us in, in, this, in this book. And, and the first thing should be is that we cannot take the best for ourselves and then offer God our leftovers and think that He's going to bless us. I mean, that would be like God showing up for, for Thanksgiving dinner. And, and we take the drumstick and gnaw all the meat off that turkey and, and, and then we chuck them the bones. There you go, you can have that. But how often do we do that where, where we're reserving the best for ourselves? We're, we're stockpiling whatever for our own lives and we're just giving God this much. And it's only second best, really. It was the job of the priest, we see in chapter 2, it was the job of the priest to guard the sanctuary and to ensure the quality of the sacrifices were going in, but yet they neglected their duty. They, they stopped caring about holiness. They stopped caring about what it is that God really requires from His people. And, the, and that can happen. We've got plenty of preachers in the pulpit right now that don't have boo to say about 
being holy. They don't have anything to say about repentance and turning away from sin and, and learning how to walk with God in a, with the Holy Spirit. Um, they just tell you how you can have the best life now. In chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, we see that infidelity was rampant and divorce was casual in Malachi's day. And that's not too much different from our day right now. In fact, uh, there's no distinguishable difference in divorce rates between people that go to church and people who don't. People who claim to follow Christ and those who care not to. We've gotten the idea that marriage is somehow a, a, a two-person contract that, that can be easily broken, a contract between a man or a woman, but in reality, marriage is a covenant between three parties. And God understands that, that, that both the male and the female are going in crippled. They're going in with a limp, so He says, I'll take care of the rest. But we can't just easily break that covenant with God, but if we don't have that mindset, we will. We do. We'll take the easy way out, the wide road. If you go back and read Nehemiah 13, that'll give you a real historic picture of what was going on back in that day. And you're going to see that the people were neglecting the service of God's kingdom by withholding their tithes. You see, the Levites were there to represent the people. The the Levites were there to help the people to know how to approach God, to know how to, um, to, 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 to... to repent, to know how to offer a sacrifice that was right in God's sight, and, and then to live a life following that that would be pleasing to the God. But the Levites weren't able to do that for the people because they were all out to work in their jobs, work in their fields, because, because they, 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 couldn't, they couldn't eat because they weren't being provided for. People would rather put money in their bank or, I don't know, buy the fancy camel at the camel lot Uh, that turned into a pun I didn't intend Uh, rather than to support the the priests who were there to help them to be the people they were supposed to be and then we see it throughout the whole Old Testament it's a reoccurring theme throughout the major prophets and the minor prophets and it's it's revisited again here in in the fifth verse of chapter 3 in Malachi this this theme of of Israel's injustice being classified by their oppression of workers, their neglect of widows and orphans, um, their forsaking of the care of the transients who were in their midst. You see, they didn't fear God. And, and don't let that word scare you. Um, it, it means to, to rightfully respect God because they, they, they really weren't respecting God because they, they weren't protecting the most vulnerable and the most marginalized in their society. The least of these, as Jesus describes them in Matthew 25. Now each of these controversies that God had between Israel, um, they, they deal with God's people's firing questions back at God. They, they begin to question His love, His faithfulness, and, 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 and His blessings of them. When in reality, it should be our love for God. It should be, it should be our faithfulness toward God. It should be our blessing of God that should be questioned because set both records up. God's and ours. God's record, pretty darn good. In fact, perfect. Never failed. Our record, 
Ooh. Not so good. We're the ones that rightfully should be called into question. Are we really loving God? Are we really faithful to Him? Are, are we really desiring to be a blessing to God? So that takes us to a second pursuit. Rather than pursuing empty religion, Malachi says, hey, let's pursue a relationship of walking with God, Israel. Let's, let's actually walk hand in hand with God. Dallas Willard uh, made this great statement. I really like it. And he said, the gospel is less about how to get into the kingdom of heaven after you die and more about how to live in the kingdom of heaven before you die. You know, and, and, and I fear that sometimes, you know, we're more worried about just getting into heaven. Oh, got my ticket punched, let's go. You know, when, when really the gospel is all about how are we going to live our lives now before that great and terrible day of the Lord? When one kind of fire or another is at the end. So amidst the indictment of, of Israel's sin, God reiterates well, the global dimensions of the worship that he deserves. You know, now think about this. Who is God? How much worship does he deserve? You know, it shouldn't just be a question, well, how much am I giving him? Yes, we should ask that question. Am I worshiping God the way I should be worshiping him? But is God getting the abundance of worship that is rightfully his? Is God receiving worship from every nation in this world? How are they going to worship him if they've never heard of him? You know, and if I could paraphrase Romans, paraphrase Romans, it's, how can they, how can they know about him unless somebody tells them? And how can someone tell them unless they go to the nations? And that was Israel's job. Israel's job throughout the entire Old Testament was to go to the nations and to proclaim the name of God to them. But they, they decided to just fall into their hollow religious practices. And, and just make it about themselves. God said to Malachi 1.11, From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And catch what that says. Not just in the temple in Jerusalem. In every place, incense will be offered up in my name or to my name as a pure offering. For my name, he repeats it, my name will be great among the nations. Verse 14, about three verses after that, he says, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be respected among the nations. You see God's heart in that? See, he's revealing his passion and, and, and his mission to us. And, and, and I think if we're really going to say, I'm going to have a meaningful walk with God, that's where we've got to begin. If, 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 if we're believing the gospel, and the gospel is going to affect my life how I live today, then, then I should be pursuing God's passion to make his name known amongst the nations. And that starts right here. That, that starts with us asking the question, who, who do I know that needs to know who God is? Who, who needs to know what his name means? Uh, his name means salvation. How do I how do I begin to do that? We should pursue that right now here and don't stop until we end up somewhere wild in this world that we never thought we'd end up in. Throughout the entire Old Testament, this has been God's passion and mission. And this passion and this mission is going to continue until the great and terrible day of the Lord, as Malachi describes it. 
Yet that day is linked to the coming of Elijah who would prepare the way to prepare a people for the Messiah. To prepare a, well, maybe kind of a tattered but faithful remnant. But what is it that holds us back? What is it that makes us hesitate to join God in this this mission and, and to walk with Him? I think it's we don't like to suffer. We don't like hardship. You know, God's people around the world had been promised great and glorious things, just as God's people of old had been. Uh, but yet, like Israel, re- upon returning from the exile, the, the glory for which we so eagerly await huh, somehow remains perplexively elusive as we live this life under the sun in this fallen world. Sin, sickness, abuse, maligning, discouragement, setbacks. Well, such is the lot of those who live in this diseased world. And I think we just have to come to terms with that reality. This is not heaven. This will not turn into heaven. This is a broken world that will one day pass away with all of its sickness. And if we're we're expecting God to somehow just show up and make our life smooth and easy and the road before us a, a piece of cake to walk upon, well, we're now looking at reality. Every single one of us is subject to the brokenness of this world. And it means hardship. And it means suffering. Dayton just read out of Isaiah 53. And that was all about the suffering that Christ endured that we could become his offspring. And as his offspring, we should expect, well, we're going we're gonna to have to walk through it. So how does God make his name great? Well, I think he's always done it through a battered, tattered, scattered <laughs> bunch of people. And not a very big bunch. Though, though small in number, the, the quality of their faith made up for their diminished quantity. I want to take you back to Scotland. This is a not a biblical thing, but an historic thing. Um, In 1745, a bunch of Scots lined up on a battlefield called Culloden. And there they were going to face the British Army, at that time led by King George II. Now, if you do some study on these Georges, George I, George II, George III, they were all the biggest bunch of jerks that ever set foot on English soil. And they were German. No offense against German, but how did they even end up being the King of England? Other than through marriage. Well, you guys, some of you might remember the King James Bible. Did you know that King James of Scotland was the first king to sit on both the English and the Scottish throne? And then his kingdom was usurped by the Hanoverians. He was of the Stuart line, or produced the Stuart line. So in 1745, a bunch of Highlanders rugged goofballs that they were, gathered on the fields of Culloden to take their stand and say, look, we want our king on the throne. We don't want to bend the knee to England anymore. And we're going to give our lives if we have to do that. Well, as the morning mist began to uh, to, to break off of the, the moor and the sun came up, the Scots realized they were in trouble. 
the ground before them was not conducive for the fight ahead of them. See, here's a weird thing about Scottish Highlanders. They charge the opposing line. They don't stand there and trade musket shots with each other, cannonballs with each other. They run headlong into the fire, knowing that a lot of them will probably die in the process. But once they get there and the cry of Claymore comes out, they go in swinging and they break the line. They have done that from their early days all the way into World War II. The Germans feared these, these, uh, these strange skirted men with their witchy women voices because the bagpipes would be playing when they charged. And, and they broke German lines doing that. They ran into artillery doing that. But that day at the Battle of Culloden, they looked ahead of them and they saw water in the ground, knee deep. And they knew there's no way we can charge the lines. But they did anyway. And they were slaughtered. It's one of the biggest massacres on a battlefield in the shortest amount of times that it ever happened. And the slaughter didn't stop there. Long after the, the Highlanders were scattered, or shortly after they were scattered, and for long after it, uh, the British troops brutally killed man, woman, and child throughout the Scottish Highlands. They outlawed the playing of the bagpipes. They outlawed the, the tartans, the kilts. They outlawed the Gaelic language. They tried to obliterate them completely. It sounds like a horrible defeat, but you know what happened? This tattered, battered, scattered remnant of Highlanders went to other places in the world. You can go to every single country in this world and find somebody who can proudly and accurately tell their history of Scottish heritage. They might even have some bagpipes stashed away or a kilt that they break out every once in a while. Some of those Highlanders came to the United States of America, and when King George III reared his ugly head, they said, where we failed at Culloden, we'll succeed here. That faithful remnant is one of the reasons we exist as a country free from the oppression of some guy named George. What God can do with a people that seem to be broken, with a people that seem to have no hope, with a people that seem to possess no glory, what God can do is amazing. You could read through the Bible and find the story constantly of this remnant. Go back to Joshua and Caleb, the first generation of Israelites to go into the promised land. The only two of the first generation of the Israelites that set foot in the promised land. They stood against the other, the other spies and said, no, we can't do it. They're too tough. We can't fight them. 17% of the spies said, yes, we can. And they did. Though they suffered intense hardship getting to that point. We read the story of Gideon who had an army of thousands and God said, well, this won't do. Let's whittle this down to 300. A small remnant of the original army. But yet he brought victory through them. During the days of the judges, when every man did what was right in his own sight, we can at least find a guy named Boaz 
and, and a foreign woman named Ruth who said, how do we live God's li- How do we live our life right in God's sight? Two out of that 400 year cycle. And I'm sure there were more, but it wasn't a vast army of them. When David the king fell into adultery and then into murder because he despised God's word, where were the, where were the faithful people there to come to the king and say, well, you really blew it there, Jack. There's only one, Nathan. Well, actually, I think Uriah was on his side. I think Uriah the Hittite, the guy that got murdered, did his best to stop David in his tracks. There's only one prophet, though, that would go to David and say, you're the man, and call them to the carpet. 400 years after the book of Malachi, a baby's born, and most of the world is oblivious to the significance of this baby, but God has preserved for himself one man named Simeon. And when Simeon holds that child, he says, finally I can go to the grave in peace, because this is the Savior I've been waiting for. What kind of faith endures uh, Greek oppression, Persian oppression, Roman oppression, to be able to hold the Savior in his hands and say, finally, the day has come. God preserved for himself somewhere in Galilee 12 common men who were willing to get up and follow this Messiah when he called them, while the rest of the multitude said, no, we'll take the other way. You can look in present day and and go to China and and think of our brothers and sisters, uh, these believing family that we have who are worshiping in clandestine locations because they are under a regime that's determined to eliminate Christianity. And and when you compare the population of the church to China and, and the population of the rest of China, it doesn't look like much. But they're growing every day. This remnant. Gosh, who knows? Maybe God has even preserved for himself a small, eclectic group of believers who meet in a basement that smells of ancient dairy products. <laughs> in Malachi three sixteen through 18 we have a description of this tattered, battered, but yet faithful remnant Those who feared the Lord, those who respected the Lord, spoke with one another. I just love that picture. The remnant found each other. They didn't go out and isolate and say, well, I guess I'm all alone. They didn't go, you know, do crybaby Elijah and hide in the caves. I'm the only one left. That's another story. God had preserved another remnant in Elijah's day who did not bend their knee to the Baals, but worshipped him. No, they found each other and they spoke to each other. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Just like there's two destinations, there's, there's two descriptions, righteous and wicked, those who serve, those who don't. Like the faithful remnant who determined to trust God no matter what in Malachi's day, we too must cling to God and to his promises 
We must trust God and we must trust His promises for the future regardless of what afflictions we might face right now. No matter what's on our horizon right now, whether it's some kind of physical affliction, some kind of political mess or or, or emotional disturbance or or, or a relational malfunction or, or, or a cultural train wreck, we've got to keep looking to God and trust in His promises. The curse of the fall affects all aspects of this life. But yet the coming final restoration that Jesus brings in His wings will likewise redeem all aspects of life. This restoration has already dawned when Christ the Son of Righteousness rose with healing in His wings. And through His death on the cross in our place, which we're about to celebrate here in a minute, He also gave to us the Holy Spirit who is our down payment, our assurance of the promises that are going to come and be fully fulfilled. There will be a day of liberation from all sin and from all death. For the remnant today, joy is secure. Glory awaits and hope stands fast. It's written. All we have to do is choose a road. Choose your road. Let's pray. Lord, as we Prepare our hearts now to come to your table. You warn us in, in 1 Corinthians to, to make sure that we, well, that we fear your name, that we esteem your name, we respect your name as we come to the table. Lord, help us to remember that if, if, if we have received the death of Christ for our sakes, for the forgiveness of our sins, that that not only secures a place in eternity in a brand new world that doesn't know the curse. To actually be able to stand in your presence with no veil between us. Help us to remember that that matters for right now, today, and how we live our lives. Lord, if we choose Christ, let us choose the hardship that we must suffer. Knowing that you will see us through it. Lord, if we choose to trust Christ, help us to focus on the promises that will be fulfilled rather than just the troubles of today. And Lord, if we choose to follow Jesus Christ, may we do it with the intent to make your name known to every nation of this world. Lord, cause us to take a moment and pause. Cause us, as the music plays, Lord, to search into our hearts. Cause us, Lord, to return to the great love that you have for us, the great love that will carry us to the day of healing and restoration. Lord, let us not forsake that.
So Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Lord, we're here. We offer ourselves to you. We give you our lives, broken as they may be. And we ask you to make out of that a remnant that will be found faithful to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground.